We're going to be in Exodus uh, 33 tonight, which is um, a continuation of the life of Moses and the story of the Israelites leaving, uh, leaving Egypt, heading into the Promised Land. I want to give a little bit of a, of a background because there's been a little bit of a development in the narrative that we kind of just for the sake of time have to skip over just a little bit. Uh, if you remember where we are in this story, God has used Moses to deliver the Israelites out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, into the promised land. And as they have left Egypt, they've seen all these signs and wonders in the way in which God powerfully demonstrated his goodness and his grace towards the Israelites. And as they leave Egypt and they're uh, heading through the wilderness into the promised land, the wilderness turns out to be a place that's full of just trials and hardships and um, uncertainty and afflictions and tests for their faith. And they get to this point last or a couple of weeks ago, we saw them at the base of Mount Sinai, where God called Moses up to the mountain where he would deliver to him the Ten Commandments, where Moses meets with God on the mountain. And while Moses is on the mountain, God tells him, you need to go back down to see the Israelites because they have created an idol that they are worshiping. And they're saying that this is the God who's brought us out of Egypt. That's the one who they're worshiping. And as Moses goes down to confront the Israelites, he sees them uh, and his, you know, Moses is angry. Uh, but, but right before that, Moses intercedes for the Israelites on behalf of, of, uh, of the Israelites. He intercedes to God for them. Because if you remember, God had told Moses, you know what, let's just, let me just wipe them out and we'll start all over with you. And Moses prays to God and he intercedes for the Israelites and tells and asks God, you know, remember your covenant, remember your promises, please don't do this. And God's grace, he relents. He says he won't wipe them out, sends Moses down. Moses in his anger throws the Ten Commandments down and they shatter on the ground and he confronts the Israelites over their sin. And here they are at the base of Mount Sinai and God tells Moses, take the Israelites and lead them to the promised land. Go ahead and take them and go to the land that I promised you. I'll send my angel in front of you. But he says, I'm not going to go with you. I know what's going to happen if I go with you. I'm going to consume these people. So you go, you lead them, and I'll send my angel with you. That's where we pick up this story. Because Moses, once again, pleads for God, pleads to God on behalf of the Israelites And so we find this point in Exodus 33, beginning in verse 12. I'm going to read down into into chapter 34 because the two narratives go together. Exodus 33, verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please Show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, that's Moses to God. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight? I and your people, is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct? I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do for you have found favor in my sight. And I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock. 
and I will cover you with my hand until I pass by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And so the Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite the mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Let me pray for us. Our God, we consider your word tonight as we've read it. We ask that you'll apply it. Give us ears that are able to hear and hearts that are able to understand. Uh, Give us a willingness to know you and to follow you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. This, This moment in Israel's history, this moment in Moses' life will mark a transition in the history of the Israelites. This moment where Moses sees God's glory is going to be a transitional moment, not just because he sees his glory, because it's marking a transition from leaving Egypt, going into the promised land. And I thought about that reality of what it feels like to be in a, in a transitional season of life. There's a sense in which we can say like it's April and exams are right around the corner, which means there's a sense in which all of you have a transition coming at the end of the semester. Like that might be a simple transition. It might be a simple transition of like finishing the semester and continue on taking summer classes. It might be a little bit more involved. It might be transitioning out of the semester and going back home and living back at home all summer, which that's an adjustment, working and getting a job. Some of you are transferring out of FAU and going somewhere else next year. That's a huge adjustment. Uh, Some of you will be graduating and thinking about it. Some of you are like hyperventilating right now. It's okay. We can take a, a deep cleansing breath. It's going to be okay. But like in that transition, right, of like you think about graduation and a job and finding an apartment and all of these like transitions, transitions in life, they're part of life, but they're hard. Uh, I remember talking to a friend of mine whenever I was graduating seminary, a friend of mine who's in ministry, he was himself leaving a pastoral position that he'd been in to take a call to be the senior pastor of a church. I was graduating from seminary. Uh, He was somewhat like a mentor to me. And so we're kind of just talking through life and where we were. And he made this comment. He said, you know, transitions in life have a way of exposing our idols and really revealing what we really trust in, in the transitional moments. There's something about transitions, he said, in life that really expose idols in in our heart that maybe we weren't even aware were present, but that really reveal what we're really trusting in and where our hopes really are lie. And I've thought about that over the years in different times and seasons of life, of times of transition. And I've realized that so often it's true. Here in this season, there's a lot that we can learn from the way in which Moses interacts with God and how God responds to Moses, not just for transitions, but I'm taking advantage of this transitional season of life to say in the transitions of life, 
in this season where you're thinking about wrapping up this semester, you're thinking about wrapping up this year, you're thinking about wrapping up your college career, whatever that case may be, in these transitions of life is an opportunity for us to entrust our ways to the Lord and to depend on His presence as we move forward into the next season that He's called us into. It's an opportunity for us to entrust our ways to Him and to depend on His presence in all that He's calling us to do. So I got four things that I'm kind of like pulling out of this passage tonight that I want you to see. Here's the first one. In order to entrust your ways to God, you need to know Him. In order to entrust your ways to God, you need to know Him. Now that seems kind of simple, but notice the way this plays out for Moses in verse 13. Moses has seen God work. He has seen God's presence. He has seen the miracles. God has confronted Moses time and time again. And yet notice the way in which Moses responds to the Lord in verse 13. Now he says, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight, that I may know you and to continue to find favor in your sight. Moses is in this season realizing that there's a significant need in his heart and in his life to truly know God and to know him in a deep personal way. Sometimes the way that we talk about knowing God can sort of, uh, can kind of get a little bit confusing and it can almost, uh, we can almost kind of miss the depth of, I think, what Moses is looking at in this passage. Because in English, we don't have a lot of specificity in our language. We just say like, yeah, I, we use knowledge in just kind of this generic way. So like, like think about the three different ways that we can think about knowing somebody or we can even think about knowing God. Like there's a generic surface level of saying like, yeah, I know God. And maybe that is the way that you've heard your friends or your parents or family members, or maybe it's kind of the way, honestly, if you're honest with yourself, the way you've thought about who God is, that you haven't really thought much deeper than just kind of this passing like awareness that there's a God who exists. And, and sure, I, I know who he is. It's almost like, it's almost like I think like if you were to take a, a six-year-old kid who lives in like the Midwest somewhere, we'll pick Nebraska, some like six-year-old kid who lives in Nebraska, and you're like, can you tell us about the Atlantic Ocean? Like, yeah, I can point to it on a map. There it is. He's not wrong, but there's a knowledge of that that's kind of like, how, how deep is that? Not, not real. He, he can point it out. He knows that it's there, but he lives in Nebraska, <laughs> right? There's, there's another level of knowledge that we can, that we can address that, that really kind of takes it to a different level where you can, you can actually like talk about facts. You can talk about things that you know, knowledge that you've acquired. Those things aren't wrong. You can be a theologian, you can be a professor, you can be a regular churchgoer, and you can spout out all types of facts that you've learned over the years about who God is. God is love, God is holy, God is just, God is true. And all of those things are true, but there's something that might be a little bit hollow about it because it doesn't come from the experiential place of really knowing God in the deep, profound way that Moses is after in this story. It's like our little friend in Nebraska pointing to the map and being like, there's the Atlantic Ocean. I can tell you about some of the fish that live there. I can maybe tell you about the depth of the ocean. And those things are all great and true. And it's stuff that you've read from the encyclopedia. But there's something that's just kind of missing. You see, when Moses is talking about knowing God, there's a real personal experience of knowing God the way you know a friend. Of studying his word, of entrusting your ways to him, of knowing him in that deep personal way. It's the difference of pointing to a map and talking to somebody who's actually grown up swimming in the ocean that can describe the taste of the salt, the strength of the current, the beauty of a sunrise on a calm day, the power of the ocean in the midst of a storm. See, there's an experience 
that comes through that that you can't replicate from reading a book or just a generic knowledge. Moses is after this knowledge of God at a deep, personal way. I thought about this. I thought about this in kind of another another fashion. Yesterday, Zach and I were meeting up, and and somebody uh, we're at this like local coffee shop, and somebody we'll just say like kind of famous walked in, right? I didn't recognize him. Zach did. You can ask him about it later. Someone famous walks in, and like there's this recognition of like, I know who that is, but then there's also that recognition of like, but he doesn't know me. And you have this like weird tension of like, you feel like you want to go say something, but there's a realization of like, I don't know him. And that's going to be weird. Do I like take a selfie? Like, what do we do in this moment, right? Think of the difference between somebody who walks in the room who's like a friend that you have known and loved and shared life with who you haven't seen in a couple of years. It's more than just the awareness of like, I know him. It's the embrace. It's the love. It's the depth that's shared of a life that you have had together. Moses is seeking after this knowledge of God in this way in order to entrust his ways to him. So how do, you, how do you do that? What does it mean to know God in this way? Well, the second thing I think is notice the way in which Moses is calling for this is, is he's desiring God's presence in his life. It's not just, may I know you? It's the very presence of God that he's after in every decision that is being made. Notice verse 15. Moses says to God, if your presence will not go with me, Do not bring us up from here. Remember, God had just told Moses, like, you can go to the promised land. You can lead the Israelites. I'll send my angel with you. And you'll make it and everything will be okay. And Moses is saying to God, if your presence doesn't go with us, let me just stay right here. We don't want to move forward. Man, to me, that's such a significant moment in this story. He is in the middle of the the desert. (laughs) They've been eating manna. They're depending on finding like water in the middle of a desert, which is not a great like proposition, right? Like if you're thirsty, here we are wandering in a desert, hoping we'll find somewhere that we can find some water. And the Israelites time and again are thirsty and God's promised them, here's the land that's flowing with milk and honey. Here's the place of provision. Here's the place of like an oasis. Here's the place that you've been longing for. And Moses is saying, if you're not with us, I don't want to go. If the very presence of God doesn't go with us, then we'll stay right here in the middle of the desert. You see, I think so often in life, especially in these transitions, transitional seasons, right? Like we sort of strike off on the next endeavor and all of a sudden you're like, your mind gets caught up on whatever the next opportunity might be. And that's understandable, but what an opportunity for us to slow down and to say, is God in the middle of this? Is God in the midst of this? Am I entrusting my ways to say, God, if your presence doesn't go with me, then I don't want to go. Will you be faithful and will you lead me through? Will you be at the center of this decision as I make this transition, whatever the case may be? So like so often, I think what we end up doing is like when you think about the transitions, like you think about choosing a major and our decision making goes like this, like, "Mm, what do I like to do and how much money does it make? (laughs) Right? And then you get close to graduation and you're like, "Mm, let me try to find a job. How much money does it make? (laughs) Trying to find a job. Like you meet a guy that you're interested in. You're like, how much money does he make? No, like, but like, (laughs) sorry. Uh, Like, think of the difference though. (laughs) You're like, close to home for some of you. Uh, Think of the difference though of in those decisions, thinking about the significance 
of is God's presence the central reality of this decision as I'm going forward? Yeah, practical questions are a part of it. But what about the difference of God? Is this a major that where I can study and in this place of study, bring the skills that you've equipped me with where your presence is known so that I can glorify you in this place. As you think about a job, God, is this a job where I can serve you faithfully with the skills and the talents that you've given me in order to bring you glory? What about in a relationship? God, as we're endeavoring into this relationship, whether it's the start of a dating relationship, as you're looking towards engagement, as you're looking towards marriage, God, are, will you be in the center of this relationship? And if not, then we don't want to go forward. Because if God's faithful presence is not the defining reality of each and every one of those significant uh, moments of life, well then, is it worth really moving forward? And so these transitional seasons, as we entrust our ways to him, we have the opportunity to say, entrusting our reality of God's presence being with us. Uh, I heard this story not too long ago about a church planter who was Raising, you know, when you plant a church, you have to raise support. It costs a lot of money to, you know, you've got to hire people, you've got to buy equipment, you've got to rent space and facilities and all that. And so what you do as a church planner is you're, you're, you, all you have is a vision and you're pitching this vision to people who will support, to churches who will t- support, to missions agencies who will come alongside. And so I heard this story about a church planner who was going before the, a church uh, in order to raise support and he's sharing the vision of the church that he wants to plant the way that God has called him to serve in this particular city. Uh, it's almost like somebody has said, it's almost like Shark Tank for church planting, if you've ever seen that show, right? Like make the pitch and we'll see if we think it's worth it. It's a terrible analogy, but it, sometimes <laughs> it probably feels that way. Uh, and as he's making this pitch, one of the leaders in the church asks him, tell us about the demographic that you plan on reaching. Tell us about, tell us about the people, the demographic that you plan to reach. Like, like what would be the, de- what would be the, the, the defining leader of your vision that would help you reach your goal of planting this church. And the church planner thought about it for a minute and he said, honestly, when I think about the type of person who's going to be key for us reaching our goal, well, it's God's presence. And if God's presence is not the central defining reality of this church that we're planting, no matter how successful it appears, it's a failure. I don't know if he got the support, but he should have. That's somebody who understands ministry. That's somebody who understands what God has called him to do. Psalm chapter 84, the psalmist says, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. A day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. And so as Moses is is seeking God's presence, you notice that at the end of that chapter, in chapter 33, what is he saying? He's like, God, show me your glory. And I think when we think about the presence of God, that we, you know, we kind of think like, man, how easy would it be to go through life if like we had this vision of God's presence of the glory that Moses sees? And we're going to get to that in a moment. But before we jump that far forward quickly, I want you to see something before we get there. And it's the third reality of this passage. While God's glory is going to be a significant feature of this story. Notice that entrusting your ways to God doesn't just mean knowing God and it doesn't just mean God's presence being central to your life, but it's also the reality of living life according to God's word. How do we entrust our ways to him? Well, we live according to what he's called us to do. 
Notice what's happening. Like at the end of chapter 33, when God tells Moses, like, yes, I will show you my glory. I'll hide you in the rock. I'm going to put my hand over your eyes. All of those things. Before that happens, what happens in chapter 34, verse 1? He tells Moses, go cut two more stone tablets, just like the first ones that you broke. And I'm going to rewrite the Ten Commandments on those stone tablets. This is more than just an artifact of like them carrying around these giant you know, stone tablets. This is the, the very terms of the covenant of the promise of God's relationship with his people. In other words, this is God saying to Moses and the people, this is how you should live. This is what life looks like in my presence. This is the central defining feature of the obligations of what it means to be a follower of God. Man, don't, don't miss this reality. <laughs> I, I, think we, I think we love the idea of God's presence. We love the idea of like, man, okay, if God's with me and he's going with me in all of these endeavors in life, like, okay, who wouldn't want that? We love the idea of knowing God's presence, uh, of knowing God himself, of, of this knowledge of knowing God like a friend. But I think sometimes where we balk is understanding the reality that God calls us to see this then is how you should live. You see, his presence, it's directly connected to the faithful expression of his word. God doesn't just demonstrate for Moses this like ecstatic experience of see me. He leaves with him a written word, a written testimony to carry with him for the generations to come. This then, he says, is what you should do. Peter tells us in, in, his, in his writing to the, to the church in Rome, as he's writing his epistle, he says, we didn't follow cleverly invented myths. We didn't follow stories. We were on the mountain. We saw all of these realities. We saw Jesus transfigured. We saw Jesus' miracles. We saw this stuff. We were eyewitnesses of his glory. But he says, we have something more certain. It's the very word of God that's been written down and left as a testimony for his people. How is it then that you entrust your ways to him? How is it that you entrust your ways to God? Well, it's by faithfully living to the best of your endeavor to what God has called you to do according to his words of a faithful response to his instructions to us. And only then, right? And only then as God gives his word to Moses, as he writes down these 10 commandments, only then is it safe for God to show his glory to Moses. It's his presence, it's the knowledge of God, it's being committed to his ways. But the fourth reality is God's glory reveals his character. God's glory reveals his character. Like verse 18 in chapter 33, God, Moses says, show me your glory. And notice what God does when he shows his glory to him in chapter 34. He says uh, in verse 6, the Lord passes before him and he proclaims his name. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And by comparison, who will not clear, uh, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. God's grace and mercy to thousands and yet his justice on the guilty only to the third or the fourth generation. You can see the comparison. What is God doing in the midst of this story, but demonstrating his grace and his mercy to his people? 
It's interesting in Hebrew where it says that God is slow to anger. Literally says that God is long in the nostrils. It's a great, that's a great analogy, right? Long in the nostrils. Why, what's that supposed to mean? When you say that somebody, no, no finger pointing. Uh, when you say that somebody is, is angry, right? And their, their temper rages like a bull. What is it? It said, but their, but their nostrils flare like a bull ready to charge. And God says, that's not what I'm like. Long in the nostrils, slow to anger, not spinning up fast, abounding in steadfast love, keeping it for generations to come. This is one of the most important descriptions of God and of his character in the entire Old Testament. Likely, like in all of Scripture, as God reveals to Moses his glory, only passing by, only to catch a glimpse. And in this transitional moment of life, in this transitional season of life, what are, we, what are we called to see? Not just that we're entrusting our ways to Him, not just that God's presence is with us, not just that we know Him, but it's actually the very glory of God defines the future of where He's calling us to go and what He's calling us to see. It was interesting that in Jesus' life, as He was asked, show us the Father. He says, anybody who's seen me has seen the Father. John wrote at the beginning of his gospel that the, word, uh, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Is it any wonder then as Jesus comes in the flesh, as he comes full of grace and truth, full of the glory of the father, what does he come and say? But he comes and says that he's called who? Not the righteous, but the sinners. Not the 99 who have no need of a Savior, but the one who's lost. He comes and in the flesh demonstrates what it looks like to be a God who's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And so what's my hope for you, for us in this season, right? Like as you think about the next transitional moments of life, as you entrust your ways to him, you can do so because not only is he trustworthy, but he's entrusted to us the reality of his son who has redeemed us from our sin, who has saved us from the guilt that we deserve. And so then clears the path for us to follow him faithfully according to his word. Let me pray for us. Our Lord and our God, we are grateful that you are a God who's abounding in steadfast love, that you are slow to anger. And as we think about this season of life that we're in, as we transition uh, out of this school year and this semester, and even for those who are graduating from, from college soon in the next few weeks, Lord, will you go before us? Uh, will you enable us to entrust our ways to you uh, that we'll seek your presence all the days of our life uh, to know that to be a, a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. And so God, we pray that you guide us as we even go from here tonight. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.